0: Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. If you just hold there for just a brief second in John 6, we'll give a brief background to our text and then we'll, we'll pray. We'll read the text and then we'll pray. This background comes on John 6. Our text is coming really at the, on the heels of Jesus' miracle, Will be in verses 22 through 40 of John chapter 6. They're coming on the heels of Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000. And leading up to the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had been performing some miracles of healing. And John records for us Jesus healing the official son and, and healing at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And the other Gospels, they record for us other healings and other miracles. But, but John's point uh, here, uh, as we lead up to our text, is that there was a, a, loud, a large crowd following Jesus. They're following him because they saw the signs that he was doing to the sick, healing them. And now they come to Jesus who was at the Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus saw this large crowd of people, he went on, his, on the mountain with his disciples. Now, the census of this, kind of, this crowd was, as, as you know, as if you would read the story, if you're familiar with the story, about 5,000 men, not including their families. So this, this crowd was massive. And Jesus fed all of them. And this recorded miracle here in John 6, he fed all of them with five barley loaves and two fish. And the text says that he fed them and they had as much as they wanted. till so they had eaten their fill. So this mob of people were already following Jesus because of the miracles of healing that he had done. But they were now convinced that he was the Messiah. And verse 14 in John 6 says that when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And then verse 15 tells us, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the context for our passage this morning is that Jesus fed the 5,000 and now they are convinced that he is the Messiah and they want to take him by force to make him king. So Jesus has withdrawn from them to the mountain by himself. And we know that he eventually walks on water and meets his disciples halfway across the Sea of Galilee and they immediately end up on the other side. So we're going to start in verse 22 and we're going to read through verses, verse 40, and then we'll pray. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Christ by your spirit. Oh Father, we we thank you that we can gather here together to hear your word. Oh Father, thank you for the testimony of the new birth for working in Abby's life through your gospel. Oh, that picture of being buried with death and raised to resurrection, oh God, is so glorious. Oh Father, may you do that here with those who don't know you. And Father, may that be an encouragement to those that are here that do, a reminder. My Father, we're thankful that Rusty is back with us from the Philippines. Father, would you bless the church in the Philippines, Santiago, and this merging with another church, the building of a parsonage. Father, would your gospel be proclaimed mightily there? Would you encourage the believers, strengthen them, provide for them, use us to encourage them, use Rusty, But Father, as we come to your text this morning, we ask that you would would speak, that you would remind us of yourself, the joy of knowing you. So Father, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight, that you would work in the hearts of the people here. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. But first of all, I'm gonna say that I'm excited to be able to proclaim God's word to you this morning and that there's no place, as Rusty said, so there's no place I'd rather be than, than right here as we think about 2023 coming to an end, ushering in the new year. You know, the new year, 2024, is upon us. And as this new year approaches some will say that for them, 2023 went by like a flash in the pan. And others, they might say that it flowed as slow as molasses. But um, so wherever you are on that, thankful to be here with you. Um, the thinking about the, the year 2023, th- it's hard for some people. I know 2020 was, was a pandemic year, that was especially hard, but each year has its own challenges. There's still, there's some that might say, you know, this year was, was hard. It was financially hard. Others might say there was a year of jubilation. And it certainly was a year of uh, PBC marriages. I think we had three marriages. And so, the, really, the approach and uh, a pending, the response that's pending to this upcoming year, 2024, is really just as diverse. Our experiences of this previous year were diverse, and, and, and our, our expectations of the next year are diverse. And so some of you are excited for this year to come. It, it was a great year. You're excited to, to come into the next year, looking forward to God's blessing and looking forward to his providence. But so others might be approaching it with a different kind of mindset. I'm going to conquer 2024. It's going to be an interesting election year, so bring it on. Um, others might be approaching it with a pessimistic, pessimistic attitude. It was it was, it was a year twenty twenty three that was not so kind to them, if we can speak plainly that way. I'm really just hoping that twenty twenty four doesn't do them in. They may not say that to you. They might have said it to their spouse on the car ride over, been thinking it in their head. And so my intention here is not to prop one particular response as better than the other. We have our own experiences, our own trials, our own seasons of joy, our own seasons of sorrow. But mainly my reasons for bringing these things to your attention is to encourage you to, to forget about them as you head into 2024. If the Lord wills that you would make it that long, I only have a few hours left. But to be like the Apostle Paul, forgetting what lies behind and, and straining forward to what lies ahead, not in an earthly sense, but in a spiritual sense, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So as we are in this kind of introduction, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with John 6? What does this have to do with the bread of life? Well, this has everything to do with John 6. It has everything to do with the the bread of life. And what's peculiar about us is that not many of us look at this year behind us with spiritual lenses. We're so prone to focus on the physical, the worldly aspects to our lives as the determining factor as to whether the year was good or it wasn't good what we expect, what we dread, what we hope for the upcoming year. We make all of our resolutions, so to speak, upon the physical and upon the worldly. I'm not saying that resolutions are good or bad. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm saying is when the clock strikes midnight, as the ball drops on 2023, my prayer is that you forget what lies behind and that Jesus would be your focus that our goal for this new year would be forget, to forget what lies behind, to strain forward with all of your might to know Christ, to count all things as lost compared to surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and being found in Him. What glorious transformations might occur if knowing Christ, beholding Christ was our goal? And as we'll see, this was certainly not the goal of the crowd following Jesus. This sermon is titled, A Different Kind of Bread, A Different Kind of Work. And I chose this title for several reasons. First, my hope for this sermon and for the new year is that you would see Jesus, that he offers a different kind of work and a different kind of bread than the world offers. Than what our sin persuades us towards. And that you would see Jesus, the bread of life, is more glorious, more satisfying than any earthly bread that you might consume. And secondly, we'll see here in our passage this morning, that John 6, in John 6, that there's really three different categories of conversation happening around the bread and, and, and work, around bread and work that are taking place. Three different conversations. And first we'll see that we have the people, the crowd, doing the right kind of work for the wrong kind of bread. And we'll see that the people are wanting to then now do the wrong kind of work for the right kind of bread. And then we'll see that Jesus starts to exhort the people to do the right kind of work for the right kind of bread. You don't feel like you need to remember that, but there's just some categories of conversations that are happening Now, looking at verses 22 through 25, we see that the morning after Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowd was searching for him. They were confused because they saw the disciples go across on a boat, but knew that Jesus was not with them. Nevertheless, once some boats arrived the next morning to the area, they taxied across seeking Jesus. And eventually they found him in Capernaum. And he would teach them in the temple. And they didn't know that he had walked on water to meet his disciples in the middle of the sea of Galilee. And they asked him in verse 25 Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus knew what they were after and did not answer their question, but, but he responds to their seeking and zealous pursuit of him with, with a correction. Verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And now this brings up the first category of conversation surrounding bread and, and work. Jesus is identifying a problem, not with their effort so much, But with their desired goal. In other words, Jesus is identifying the fact that the people are zealous, they're working hard, they're working, striving, they're pursuing. But Jesus says, You're really just not pursuing me. You don't really want me. You may recognize that I am the Messiah, but all you want from this Messiah is earthly things. You want to fill your stomach, you want provision in this life. One commentator, William Hendrickson, writes, what Jesus meant was that though these people had seen his miracles, especially the healing of the sick and the feeding of the 5,000, but in a more general way, all the wonders which he had performed, they had not understood them in their quality as signs, which pointed to him as the spiritual Messiah, the Son of God. The people's chief interest in Jesus was this, that they had eaten the bread cakes which he had provided, and that thus their stomachs had been filled. And understandably, in this kind of agrarian society, and a poor one at that, food was hard to come by. Bread was sustenance for life. Who wouldn't want a king that could provide his people with free food? And so although they're seeking Jesus, although they believed him to be the Messiah, the promised prophet, who is to come into the world. They wanted him to be king. They were focused on the benefits of what Jesus could bring to the table, literally bringing bread to their table. But they didn't perceive Jesus to be the spiritual Messiah. They wanted an earthly Messiah to fill their needs. Of course, one direct application of those people who use the name of Jesus to promote health and wealth and prosperity... They say that, you know, if you believe in Jesus, if he he comes into your heart, so to speak, then he'll bless you in this life with health and wealth and prosperity. Of course, we know that's a lie. We know that's a lie, but do we actually live that way? Are we using Jesus to us here in this room? That might sound like a silly question. Of course not. I believe in Jesus for salvation. Here's how John Piper says it. He says, Jesus came into the world to change your desires. He came to be bread, not mainly give bread. He didn't come to be useful, but to be precious. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to assist you in meeting desires you already had before being born again. He came to change your desires so that He is the main one. So you may not seek after riches or fame or status in your job, or health and wealth, but is Jesus a means to the end to make your marriage better? Is Jesus a means to an end to, to restore broken relationships with family, with children, with friends? Are you using Jesus today that to, to the, in a way that's just the politically conservative thing to do? You want Jesus to usher in this period in America that's peaceable, where everyone obeys Christian law. Now that all sounds really nice. Probably not going to happen. Think about that. If your main focus on Jesus, the Bible, Christianity, is that, you would be, that it would be useful to our nation, useful for our rulers. If your main focus for the use of Jesus is how we can preserve the culture Is that any different, really, than the health and wealth and prosperity gospel? So Jesus is telling the crowd who believes that he is the Messiah, you didn't seek me because you saw the signs. You're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus tells them, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Now Earlier, Dennis read Psalm 78 which is talking about the Israelites, the pursuit of manna from heaven. God had led them by a cloud in the day and by a fiery pillar by night. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them to drink abundantly from the deep. They made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they still sinned more against him, rebelling against the Most High. They didn't believe God or trust in his saving power, but yet he still fed them with the bread of angels, manna from heaven. And so what did they do? They ate and were filled for for God gave them what they craved. Listen to this from Psalm 78. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, The anger of God rose against them and laid low the young men of Israel. The Israelites got what they craved. But they failed to see that the manna from heaven was meant to point them to the one that was providing it. And so when Jesus says in verse 27 here that do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, He's mainly critiquing the goal of their work effort. Don't work for that, work for this. In other words, why are you expending so much energy on obtaining bread? Now, our earthly bread has an expiration date. And, 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 and as a matter of fact, so do the people who eat this bread have an expiration date. But heavenly bread, that spiritual bread that it endures to eternal life, has no expiration date. And neither do the people who eat the spiritual bread. Why do we worry so much about these, these earthly things? This is why in Matthew 6, Jesus exhorts the people to not be anxious. What you will eat or, or, or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you, what you will put on is not life more than food or the body more than clothing. If, if he clothes the lilies of the field, he'll clothe you. If he feeds the birds of the area, he will also feed you. And he says, therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we see that God does provide physical bread. He does provide physically for his people. But Jesus' main concern is that the crowd see that the most important thing for them is not satisfying their bodily hunger. The most important thing for them is to be spiritually satisfied. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. In verse 28, we come to the people's response. And they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, the people hear Jesus' exhortation to work for the food that endures their eternal life. And their response is, yes, please give us this type of bread. We want that bread that doesn't perish, but endures to eternal life. And so they ask, what should we do? What, what must we do to be doing the works of God? We want that bread, so tell us what we need to do. What works of God do we need to do? In other words, what things, what law-keeping, what, what, what must we do to get this eternal bread that does not perish? So these people are wanting to do the wrong kind of work for the right kind of bread, though they don't know it's the right kind of bread. They misinterpret what the bread is. The bread that Jesus speaks of is a different kind of bread. And here's the interesting thing for us. They believe from the signs that Jesus has done that Jesus is the Messiah. They want to make him king. They want him to rule. They want him to give them this eternal bread. But because they misinterpret what this bread is, and they don't understand that the bread is a gift given by the Son of Man, They think that they must work for it. Therefore, in verse 29, Jesus answers them This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So here, Jesus presents a different kind of work. The work that they must do is believe. Jesus has already presented a different kind of bread, one one that does not perish but endures through eternal life. And that bread is given by the Son of Man. And so now Jesus redefines work. He says that the work that you must do is believe. So he's exhorting them to do the right kind of work for the right kind of bread. And please don't misunderstand this, that Jesus isn't talking about the doctrine of justification here so much as he is telling the people that the focus of their life is off. They've spent all their energy chasing bread that will only perish. The bread they will eat will perish and they will perish. But he exhorts them to strive, to work, to believe, to press forward, to attain the bread that endures to eternal life. But instead of this, they resort to mere external religion. And here, ultimate satisfaction to their hunger is being offered by Jesus. And the people say, what must I do? Tell me the work that I need to perform to get God to give me this bread. Brothers and sisters, this is a dreadful mistake. To go throughout your life professing that you know Jesus, professing that he is king, professing that he saves, but living your life saying, what must I do to get this bread? Some of you here listening will hear this offer of Jesus as the bread of life and, said, and say, yes, I, I want this bread. Give me this bread. But in the same breath say, what must I do to get this bread? I'm sinful, so I must make up for it with my, my serving. Maybe God won't really see my wicked heart. Maybe I won't see my heart if I do more. Serving in the nursery, got to be worth some major bread bucks. Read the Bible through in a year, check. Serve in the counseling ministry, serve on the mowing team, serve as a roving usher, serve as a deacon, serve as an elder, serve, do work, serve, do work. And I don't say these things to diminish their importance here because they are important. Those things, those good works, they ought to come out of an overflow of thankfulness to God for this heavenly bread. But not in an effort to obtain it. And there's a way in which you and I can live this Christian life that's not really Christian at all. Stay busy doing Fill up your time with things to do. This is even applicable to those in ministry. Just do, do, do. Just serve, serve, serve. Leave no time for striving to see Jesus as precious. Eventually, Jesus and the gospel will grow dim. Ministry will become about obedience and getting people to do the right things and not about getting them to eat. To feast upon the life-giving bread of Christ. Getting them to drink deeply from the fountain of living water. Just get them to be involved more. Do more. Serve more. Members, fill up your time saying yes to everything. Serving in everything. Pleasing people. Fill up your time. Talk about religious things, spiritual things, doctrinal things. But don't ever let them actually sink into your heart. Greet people on Sunday, then leave have meaning, don't have meaningful Christ-exalting relationships in the church that call you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Make sure you're just here in attendance and then then you're, you're good, you're satisfied. And then spend the rest of your time in the world chasing it, chasing the bread of this world. And slowly but surely fall in love with this present world, the things of this world, so that eventually you become numb to the glorious things of Christ. Until eventually you become numb to the gospel. This is why in Matthew 7, Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do mighty many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But, but I thought we were doing the works of God. We want that eternal bread. I venture to see, think that most of us might be sitting here thinking, yeah, that's, that's a heavy, weighty text. That's not good. I'm sure that's glad that's not me. Corey quoted him last week. It's a 17th century theologian. I love as well with Wilhelmus Abrackel. I'm not really sure how to properly pronounce his name, so we just kind of guess. He wrote about this, the presumptuous faith of those he called temporal believers. For Brackel, those temporal believers with presumptuous faith are, he says, assured of the spiritual truths that there is a God, that Christ is the Savior, that salvation is to be obtained in him, And that outside of him, condemnation must be expected. And these temporal believers, being conscious of these truths, they believe them. There are those who are only somewhat assured of these and similar truths, who nevertheless speak boastfully with much liberty. Others are so assured of the reality of these truths that they would die for them. By frequent contemplation upon and discussion of these things, They condition themselves to believe that they are partakers of them, since they are so firmly assured of these matters. However, they bypass their heart. There are no earnest and straightforward transactions with God, with Christ, to receive him by faith, seek for his indwelling in the heart, and truly and unconditionally surrender oneself to him. Their hearts remain hearts of stone. Since they believe these truths externally, however, as well as by reason of being sure of this, they conclude and imagine that these truths are in an internal, internal reality and that they are true believers. So, what is Rackwell saying here? He's saying that there are those who are not really believers who think they're believers. There are those who have a presumptuous faith, that there is a faith based upon confidence in the right things, the right doctrines, the right truths, so much so that some would even dare to die for them. He says there is a presumptuous faith because they bypass Christ in the heart. True bread, enduring to eternal life, is offered them, and they say, what what work must I do? What, What must I believe? What must I understand to obtain this bread? And all the while Christ says, this is the work of God. The work of God is this, believe. Not just intellectually with your head, believe with your heart. Receive the bread, eat the bread with your heart. Don't let Christ bypass your heart, unconditionally receive him. Behold him as glorious. Brackle continues. He says, Temporal believers possess a faith which is but a walking dream, an imagination, and a gazing upon the truth and preciousness of spiritual matters, a rejoicing in promises which were not made to them. There's no searching of the heart. Neither are there sincere and earnest transactions with God and Christ. Temporal faith is an intellectual whim, a figment of the imagination, a superficial and presumptuous in nature, without uprightness of heart, and without these truths having taken root downward in the heart. To steal a phrase from John Bloom, he says, It's like being in an evil lullaby, pacified by the song of religion, wrought to spiritual lethargy until you fall asleep. You want work? This is the work of God, brothers and sisters. Believe in Christ. Any work that we do for others is gospel work so that they would taste and see the bread of life. And our work flows out of a love for Christ. And the bread of heaven will sustain us. The bread of heaven will energize us. If you know any American history close to the American Revolution, you might have heard of the Great Awakening. A man named George Whitfield was a famous preacher during the Great Awakening in the 1700s. He exerted himself in ministry so much that people, many people think that he, he preached or contributed, his preaching and ministry contributed to his own death. He, he would travel back and forth from America to England, preaching, riding on horseback to large fields and preaching to, to, to large crowds, exhausting himself in ministry because he felt the earnest call to proclaim the gospel. One day after preaching, he visited another famous theologian of the time, Jonathan Edwards. He visited his church in Northampton, and and he preached. And then afterwards, he went to Edwards' home and, and gave what he calls an exhortation to some people who gathered at Edwards' house. He was exhausted, and he was hungry. In his journal, he writes, in the evening... I gave word of my exhortation to several who came to Mr. Edwards' house. My body was weak, and my appetite almost gone. But my Lord gave me meat which the world knows nothing of. Lord, evermore give me this bread. Amen and amen. There is a difference in work that is fueled by worldly desires and sustained by physical bread. And there's a work that is fueled by heavenly desire, sustained by heavenly bread that the world knows nothing of. You want to help someone grow in Christ? Feed them a carb-only diet. Fatten them up with the bread of heaven. This bread endures to eternal life. Just heavenly bread and living water to drink. There's a quote I've heard numerous sources that I'm not really sure where it originated from. It says that we're just beggars showing other beggars where there's bread. May we be desperate, like the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 who said to Jesus, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. So the people, the crowd, were working for the wrong bread. They, they wanted to do the wrong kind of work and after Jesus told them that the work that they must do is believe, here's the response in verses, verse 30, 31. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus had just done Miracles of healing just fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. And And they asked for another sign. This, unfortunately, is the response of many who reject Christ, who reject the gospel. God's word is presented to them. God's work in creation is all around them. God's miraculous work in the lives of his people is around them. But even though they see God's work, they see God's creation, they reject the gospel because they need some more evidence. Just show me another sign. Yeah, I saw how you healed the sick, how you fed the 5,000, but but do it again. In fact, you know what? Our fathers did not just eat manna in the wilderness once, but continuously. Can, Can you do that? They had bread from heaven to eat. Do that and we will believe you. It's like saying, you know, I know you answered prayer and healed my loved ones from sickness. My mother, my father, my sister, my brother who was near to death. You you, you healed them. You answered prayer. But was that really you? Or was that the doctors? Do do it again. This time I'm behind on bills and and I, I need a raise. Then I will believe. Then I will give my whole life to you. Look at verse 32. This is Jesus' response. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see, Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000 was reminiscent of Moses, the prophet who the people believe gave them manna from heaven in the wilderness. And so they're looking to Jesus to be a similar type of prophet, but, but a greater one, a Messiah, who can give them bread from heaven like Moses, but who reigns as king, unlike any other who has reigned as king. But still, Jesus tells them, you're missing the point. It was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it was my Father. It's the Father who gives you true bread from heaven. And this is what the Israelites missed too. As we read about in Psalm 78, they were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They received water from the rock. They received manna from heaven. But still... And still, in spite of all this, they sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. This has been the issue from the start. They have mistaken earthly bread for true bread. And like the woman at the well, they've mistaken well water for living water. And you can see their response to Jesus. Verse 33, Jesus says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They're still looking for that sign. Okay, give it to us then. But they refuse to come because they need to see more. But really, as Jesus says, they're just seeking bread for their stomachs. They're seeking their own benefit. And while this certainly applies to unbelievers, this applies to professing believers as well. What do you do when you're challenged to count everything as lost that you may gain Christ? What do you do when you're exhorted to receive him by faith, seek for his indwelling in the heart, and truly and unconditionally surrender oneself to him, to find him precious above all else in this life? Do you say in your heart, yeah, but what work do I need to do? Do you say in your heart, yeah, but to be honest, Christ is just not real to me. If he would only make himself real to me. You know, I've been really dry lately. I don't sense Christ in my heart. I I want to believe that Christ can truly satisfy my longings in this life. I I believe in Christ. But but I I actually doubt that he could really and truly satisfy. If only he would show me. If only he would give me a sign that he is really sufficient for all of life. My, My marriage needs help. God, would you fix my marriage then? Then I would give my life to you. I need a new job. My family's in debt. We're drowning here. If you would only help me out with this, then I would see that you are truly for me and will seek you with all my heart. If then, if then, if then. This is Jesus' response. Look at verses 35 through 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, Jesus says, you want a sign? I'm the sign. Behold me, look to me. You want something to satisfy you perpetually? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Look to his word, taste and see that the Lord is good. Presumptuous believers take the true bread of heaven for granted. They use him for his benefits and they refuse to come to him and receive him in their hearts. They want Jesus to do more. To show them something more. All the while, Jesus is not far from them. He says to them, I am the bread of life. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So, what does this type of belief look like? Not mere intellectual belief. This is what Brockle says of, of true believers. They receive the Lord Jesus with their heart. Their activity is neither external nor intellectual in nature, but proceeds from within. Their heart mourns, longs, believes, surrenders, and is conscious of what is lacking within. They examine the condition of their heart, and in such a frame of mind, they engage in seeking to have the Lord Jesus in their heart. This receiving of him is their daily food. And therefore, they repeat it over and over. Not so much with the objective to be included in the covenant of grace, but with the objective to be more and more intimately united with Christ. Christ is to them so lofty, so glorious, so desirable, and to enjoy him is so sweet and precious that in comparison to him, all else is of no value. The preciousness of Jesus draws eyes, heart, and hands to him. Once they may enjoy him, they know how precious a treasure they have found. Their concern becomes that they may not lose him and thus they cling to him and cannot let him go. Brothers and sisters, is this what you desire? Or do you hear this and think, yeah, but what must I do? I need need something practical to do. I'm just not that spiritual. Give me a job to do. I'm, I'm good at that. I want to believe this way. I want to desire Christ this way, but I need more. What really is the issue is not this. It's the problems I'm facing at work, at at home, the problems I'm facing in the family. If Jesus would just show up, then I'd believe like this. Brothers and sisters, this type type of spirituality is not just for a, not that there is a spiritual leak. There is nothing like that. All are called to this type of faith. Listen to Jesus' word here and and, and take them to heart. For for life and death is at stake. Let's let's look at verses 49 through 58. Verse 49. "Your, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. There are those here who are not Christians. And if you're here you're not a believer. If you eat only of the bread of this world, You will die. But if you eat of the true bread of heaven, you won't die. You'll live forever. How do we eat of this bread? How do we drink this blood? Believe. Cherish Christ. Love Christ more than everything. Hope in the gospel. Warm yourself in the, in the fire of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Consider the gospel. Consider that Jesus' perfect life was for your benefit. We were born sinners. One sin condemns us. But there is an amazing reality. Christ has lived the life that we cannot. And he has perfectly lived in our place. And not only is his life important, but his death is important The blood of Christ, shed on the cross, cleanses us from all sin. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has bore the wrath of God set against you. If you're a believer, he bore your sin, was crucified with it, His resurrection conquered death, so you, so have you. You're in Christ. He raised, has conquered death. You have raised with him. Though you may die in this earthly life, you will one day be raised with Christ and live forever. Because Christ has been raised and he is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. Through faith, he clothes you with his righteousness. He rules and he reigns from heaven now. If you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Consider these things. Consider his promises. Consider his patience. Consider that Jesus' death, his life, his resurrection, his ascension, they have reconciled you by faith to God. To a glorious creator, you have been reconciled. And if you're not a believer, you're here this morning, consider this. You may gain the world... But if you live life only for the bread of this world, you will forfeit your soul. Believers, beware as well. The creator of the universe offers himself to you. Nothing else can satisfy your hunger but the bread of heaven. Nothing else can quench your thirst but the fountain of living water. And so as we approach this new year of 2024, let us consider what is before us. Let us leave behind working for the food that perishes. Let us work for the bread that endures to eternal life. And let us daily believe and daily eat this bread of heaven till we have our fill for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Christ, the living bread, and by your Spirit, our helper, comforter. Oh, Father, would you work in those here who do not believe. Oh, Father, there is bread offered to them. And they just want to go get a French baguette. There's bread offered to them and they want to live for the world. They will never be satisfied. Oh, Father, satisfy them with your love in Christ. Satisfy them with the bread of life, with the fountain of living water. Cause them to hunger for you and thirst for you. Oh, Father, would you do the same to Believers this morning, to those members of PBC that are here, Father, that you would be their first thought, their last thought, their everlasting thought. Oh, that they would desire more of you, less of the world, that they might be nourished by Christ, filled by your Spirit. But Father, as we approach this new year, but Father, we're not ushering in anything. You are bringing us to another year by Your mercy. But Father, grant us that we would have a vision of You. We would vision of Christ, and it's in His name we pray. Amen.